Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today, we get to hear the rest of my conversation with Thomas. Thomas got in touch with me and wanted to be on the show to be able to talk about his childhood experiences. And I think it takes a lot to contact someone and say, you know, I have a story I need to tell. I haven't talked about it before. I need to kind of formulate it in my mind and also be able to put it into words and be able to share some of the things that happened to me, kind of get into the depths of some of my previous experiences, even though they're hard to think about, just because I think it would be helpful to other people to hear about it. So I applaud Thomas for coming forward and wanting to share his story to you for your benefit. Thomas is from Denmark. And as I said during the first interview, the first half, his English is truly exceptional. And he grew up alone with a covert narcissistic mother who kept him socially isolated, emotionally abused him, and manipulated his sense of reality. And most of his life, he didn't realize that anything was wrong because of the covert nature of the emotional abuse and control and the amount of gaslighting that he was exposed to. A year ago, he started to get a better grasp of his own reality and slowly began to understand what had really happened. Thomas is on the show hoping that his story can help others better recognize signs of covert abuse and control. I really thank Thomas for wanting to share with all of you. And here is the rest of my conversation with him. Okay, so now moving on to when, as you're talking about, it was very dark in your room. And I want to talk now about when the lights went on and when you started to have a sense of things. So go ahead. We should probably talk about it chronologically. Mm-hmm. Sure. So when I left home as an, a young adult, I was very bad at a lot of things that my friends could do fairly effortlessly. As I mentioned earlier, I was terrible at going to bed at night, like just shutting off the lights and going to bed. So I got eight hours of sleep. I was very, very bad at that. So I was always kind of sleep deprived. My concentration ability was terrible. Like I could concentrate very, very well if the subject was interesting to me. But if it wasn't, I guess I was kind of obsessive about some subjects. If I wasn't like obsessively interested in the subject, I was terrible at keeping my concentration. Um, I was not very good at setting boundaries. I had some feelings that I couldn't really contact in a in a healthy way. I'll get back to that later. But like anger, for instance, I was very bad at feeling angry. My emotional responses were like in two different directions. I would either be like melancholically sad, lonely, just this like bad feeling. <laughs> I would be like manically excited feeling. I had those like, that was like my emotional range. And I would kind of flip back and forth between that. I would party a lot on the weekends because I didn't have a lot of uh, I was I was not very good at talking to my friends about feelings, so I didn't have a lot of really like trusting relationships to to friends. It was more people that you partied with in the in the weekend. That that was like most of my relationships. 
And then after some years of living like that, I found my girlfriend. That's always also the, the mother of my kids. And she works a lot better emotionally than, than I do, at least at that time. And she was kind of the, the first to kind of break through the ice and establish that just basic human trust, I guess. And then from there, I slowly started to feel more and more, I guess, and to kind of land in like my own reality a little more. As the years went by, I could slowly start seeing that maybe my childhood was not as nice as I had thought earlier. Like in my early adulthood, my impression was that I had a good childhood with a, with a loving mother. And the issues I had was because my father had rejected me and that was very hard emotionally. And that created some some scars that yeah, I would have to carry around. That was kind of the, the narrative. And then I get kids myself. And then I started seeing like that some of the stuff that I was exposed to was really, really strange and different. It was hard to see when that's like the only thing you've known yourself. But if you have well-functioning empathy, you're not going to treat your kids like that. And at the same time, I could see my mom's relationship to her grandkids was very strange. She tried to diagnose my youngest boy with autism when he was like eight months old. He was perfectly healthy, perfectly normal, but she was really insisting that we needed to take him to some specialists that did like anti-autism training, stuff like that. She treated our kids very differently. Like the oldest got all the attention. The other was treated more like, like a dog or something like just very, very big difference in, in how she treated them. And, and we were like, what's going on here? Like something is really, really strange. And to begin with, we thought that she might have had some level of undiagnosed Asperger's, but, but it didn't really fit. Like it wasn't really that pattern, but we began to suspect some kind of stuff being different. And then through the years, there's been a lot of, of stuff with her being a grandmother and kind of trying to invade our life all the time, where we constantly had to like set boundaries again and again and again. She would always try to get us to agree that she could help us with something. And we would say, no, thanks. We've got that. Oh, but you're so tired. You're so stressed. Let me help with this. Let me help with this. And then at some point, it was just easier to say, all right, do this little thing. And then just stop nagging us about it. And then um, a little more than six months ago, she had been uh, babysitting our, our boys. And she picked up the youngest, who was four at that time, from his kindergarten bus. And she'd taken him back to the, to the eldest, uh, who was uh, back at her uh, apartment. And we had an agreement that she wouldn't ride a bicycle with the youngest on the back because she's, she's in her 70s. She's heavily visually impaired. She's basically blind when it's dark. And when we told her about that, that we didn't want her to, to ride uh, with him on a bike, like a couple of years ago, she basically shamed us for like even suggesting that she would do something like that. And then, then uh, when she uh, dropped the kids off at our place, uh, she told us that uh, she rode with him on the bike with no lights on in the dark in traffic and we were shocked and it was like what what did you do and there was a lot of explanations about why it was done that way but basically she wanted to spend like 20 more minutes with like her favorite grandchild which was the oldest so she kind of risked the safety of the of the youngest to just get back a little faster and after that I was sitting talking to my girlfriend later and, and I was like, something is off. Like, what's the pattern here? Like, this is messed up. And I, I can't remember if it was her or me that said, just rhetorically asked, could there be some narcissistic tendencies? And it was like everything just kind of clicked, just fell into place. And it created a very different context for all the stuff that happened early on in, in, in my life. 
but it's been so difficult to spot because there's always like a plausible explanation for the stuff she does. Like she's never been physically abusive. It's always emotional manipulations. And she's very, very quick at withdrawing if there's conflict brewing in any way. So the gaslighting that narcissists usually do is much easier because the conflict is always kept at kind of a low, low level. The reality that she wants to gaslight people into is closer to the actual reality than if someone like, say, like got struck in the face and I was afterwards told like, no, I didn't strike you in the face. That's a bigger gap between realities than what I've been experiencing. So tell me about this narcissism. When you start looking up different diagnoses, you can see somebody in those diagnoses, but you can also think, oh, no wonder. And oh, now this makes sense. So tell me about what you learned about the specific kind of, because there are different kinds of narcissism now as it's sort of the diagnosis has expanded and I guess become more perfected and specific. So to help the listeners understand what form of narcissism you think really is fitting here for your mother's psyche? So I would say covert narcissism is the, is the term that I've encountered that fits best. I can't remember the like, official definition of that. So what fits for her is the plausible deniability aspect. The way she gets narcissistic supply is always covered up in her being friendly and helpful. So like she still has extremely controlling behavior, but it's always covered up in her helping someone and then them owing her after she did them a favor. Or she will like lend money to someone and then they owe her money suddenly. And like it's still extremely controlling, but it's covered up better. Also, she reacts to narcissistic injury in a little more covert way. She will often uh, withdraw from a conflict. When I was a kid, I think the power dynamic was different. So then she would fly into a rage fairly often. But as soon as I became old enough to be like defiant, when I became a teenager, basically, the conflicts would be kept at a, at a lot lower level. So she will often try to convince you that she's actually the victim. If there's any kind of conflict, she will start crying. She will start explaining why it's actually other people's fault that this bad thing happened. There is a term that might exist out there, but I sort of came up with it because of a someone who was in um, a circle of mothers who I knew at the school where one of my kids went. And she was sort of aggressively caring. I don't know how else to say it. And it really got into what I call competitive caring. You know, if somebody had a problem, she had to be the one. She would sort of, I, I picture her sort of running through a room, knocking everyone out of the way so that she would be the one to get there first and to make the meal or to be the one who is seen as the best. And if anyone got a compliment, thanking them for having been kind or doing something nice for someone else, she would say, oh, well, that, well, uh, but I did, I did it twice or that's because I told them that, that, you know, there was <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. okay. Sounds very familiar. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's so self-driven, but it is in a way to get people to feel they owe you, feel they're indebted to you. And to, I think kind of whitewash your reputation to be seen as this angel who is a, uh, who is kind, who is giving, but that wasn't your experience of her. Looking at it now, I can see it for what it is. And it's basically all a big control game. I can't 
remember that I ever had an interaction with her that didn't have some kind of this, this weird control flavor in some way. She's extremely conscious about the power dynamics of like exchanging gifts. So she's very, very generous, but she's terrible at accepting gifts. She will never do that because that will give other people power over her. She's not very good at accepting favors. Yeah, it's always this weird control game. Wow. Okay. So any other reflections just about her? I mean, maybe just to understand where some of this came from, potentially. You know, so much of when people are this way, it's in a reaction to having been raised a certain way, or sometimes it's wiring. You know, it's sort of the nature versus nurture or a little bit of both. I'm wondering what you've come to understand. So I've thought a lot about intention. Because she definitely had a messed up childhood. There's no doubt about that. And her siblings uh, are also, have had a very difficult time establishing regular adult family lives. I'm not sure where they're at on the personality disorder spectrum, but they definitely have some level of narcissism, antisocial stuff going on. But she comes from a really messed up family with a mother that would play her kids out against each other. I don't think there was any physical violence, but there was definitely a lot of very, very unhealthy control stuff going on and emotional manipulations. My grandfather was an artist. And whenever he had to finish some work with the kids in the house making noise and stuff, uh, he would send them off to like an orphanage for a couple of months. From they were very small, from they were like two, three years old. Then they would get dumped off at some orphanage, basically, for like two months. And then they would get back after he reached this deadline. So like just a lot of terrible stuff like that going on. But I've thought a lot about the intentionality of it all. I should probably elaborate a bit on the whole thing with my father because that's also changed a little bit. So basically looking back at that, there was a couple of missing pieces I got from my, um, my half-siblings. I have contact with my with father's other kids. And they told me that he told them that my mother tricked him. So basically, she lied about birth control. So I was always raised with this narrative that they were very much in love, but this terrible fate just determined that they couldn't be together. But I'm pretty sure that that's not what happened. I'm pretty sure she just decided she wanted a kid and she lied about birth control. And then she took him to court in a paternity case, basically threatening to blow up his marriage because she wanted him to pay child support. And I don't know what was said to make him show up when I was eight years old, but I'm pretty sure he didn't do that voluntarily. I'm pretty sure he was kind of forced. And I'm pretty sure she knew all the way that he would reject me because I don't think they had that loving relationship that she's been telling me about. So I think, again, trying to understand how narcissists work, I think it was basically large control game again, constantly trying to maybe reclaim him a little bit, but also pushing me to get rejected by him because then she would be my emotional comfort. So whenever I was sad and was crying about being rejected, then she would be step in as this kind of savior. The whole narrative about this wonderful dad, it didn't come from me. I didn't have a dad, but I, I had no idea. I never had a dad. It's not like I had a dad and he died. I just grew up without a dad. That was okay. But the whole belief structure about like, no, no, you needed that. Otherwise you're broken. Otherwise you, you can never become a well-functioning male adult. That came from her. So she kind of painted this fairy tale dad 
and told me like, oh, you're going to have, you're going to see him. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so nice. All your pain is going to go away. And then he rejected me and she kept pushing me in that direction. Like when I was eight, when I was 11 and yeah, later on a couple of times also trying to push me to contact him, even though she knew he was going to reject me. When a parent has a disorder, what you hope is that they can have a moment where they say, I think that I'm making my child unnecessarily miserable and I need to look at that and maybe get some help with that. But that's sometimes too much to ask, honestly, when there really is a personality disorder. So often I hear about people who talk about having stayed with a partner who they think really saved them or a cult leader who will say, if you had continued living the life that you were living, you would have absolutely gone down this path of drugs and recklessness and whatever else. And I saved you, even though that wasn't necessarily going to be their trajectory. That was just this supposition so that the person could be seen as the savior. And often within those kinds of manipulative environments, because I think within a cult, there's a ton of covert, sometimes overt, but covert narcissism. You get pushed down and then the same person who pushes you down reaches down to help you. You hold on to their hand as they lift you back up. You're somehow supposed to forget or not notice that you were on the ground because of them, but instead they're helping you through a difficult moment, but one that they created. And so to have that awareness, like, oh, well, thanks, right? Is that a thank you thing? Or is that a, well, how dare you do that to me? And then help me through this difficult moment that was so manufactured by you? Same thing with the sword and same with all of these moments. And then then traumatic bonding occurs. (laughs) Ah, okay. So let's talk about that if you can, because that's a term some people know, but some people do not. It's a good term to know about. So the way I understand it is the cycle of abuse will often create some very strong emotional bonds between abuser and and victim. So basically, if someone abuses you and then afterwards treats you nicely, you will interpret the relief that you feel as love and affection towards the abuser. You will experience uh, stronger positive emotions towards the person than than you should, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how did that play out in your family system with your mom? I think the major situations has been centered on my dad, but all the time she's told me scary stories, like the stuff with the ghost stories. She would terrify me with scary stories, and then I could I could sleep in her room, and she could comfort me and make me feel safe. Of course, the normal adult response would have been to tell me that ghosts doesn't exist, put a light in my room, and to maybe sleep in my room instead and tell me that this is fine, this is safe, this is a nice place to fall asleep. But it was never about that. It was about the control games again. I think also looking at the general patterns, again, it's so difficult because I can't go inside her head and see her intentionality for this behavior. But there's definitely a pattern of enjoying making other people feel miserable. So I guess that falls in the realm of like emotional sadism. So like, I think some of the stuff she enjoyed when I was running around as, as, as a freaky little kid playing with really dangerous weapons outside was that the other parents were scared and that gave her some power. She feels powerful when other people get their boundaries crossed, basically. So there's been many, many situations where I've been um, like looking back at it. She would make me scared 
before we had to do something that wasn't really scary? Like you tell me a story about something that could go wrong before we had to, I don't know, go ride in a car or something. You tell me about a car crash, stuff like that. Normal everyday stuff that wasn't really scary became scary because you would always have this story about how it can go catastrophically wrong. The incident I told you about with riding on the bicycle with my, with my youngest kid, looking back at it, I think the main motivation for doing that was that we told her she couldn't do it. It was crossing that boundary. She has this weird childlike enjoyment of breaking rules and crossing boundaries. She took my youngest kid on a trip to one of the few places here in Denmark that's actually dangerous. It's a place out by the sea where there's some, some cliffs where you can fall down and it's high enough that, that you can die if you fall down. And she took on, on, on a trip there with some, some explanation about it's a good place to find fossils and he's very interested in dinosaurs. And then before they went there, she was uh, apparently telling him stories about how people died there. Like this lady fell off the cliff and died and telling him scary stories. And then they go for a walk there afterwards. So he's, of course, scared and terrified. And she seems in some kind of weird way to, to feed off of that. And you could tell just by the look on her face, or how could you tell that she would feed off of these sorts of things? Um, yeah, definitely something about the look on her face. That's a certain level of enjoyment. But she also keeps seeking it out. Like whenever people are miserable, she will just want to hear everything about it. If someone is sick, she will want to hear everything about their sickness and how hard it is for them emotionally and basically collecting misery all the time. Wow. You know, something that you see that happens within certain family systems that are very unhealthy and cultic groups, even I'm thinking of schools where we have the idea of sort of the mean girl who causes the other girls to fight with each other and just sort of stands back, crosses her arm, sort of has the smirk on her face and watches it all play out with government leaders also who we've had recently who, you know, cause <laughs> infighting and people to be against each other and kind of sits back in a satisfied way and also watches it all play out. And they're the puppet master, you know, and it happens within certain family systems where the parents will turn or even sometimes siblings do this to each other. They they will say so and so said this to me about you. And then they said this to me about you. And, you know, and none of that happened. But then, you know, they're punching each other on the couch and the other one is feeling very powerful that they created that. It really is all too easy, unfortunately, to do that if you don't know you're being played. You think about why that would give people satisfaction and what is wrong with them to know that that would be something it would never occur to you to do to anyone else. And so what's missing or what in terms of someone's conscience for other people being able to heal that moment and be there as a friend or protect someone, that would be the power they would have as opposed to the ones creating it. But it sounds like she wanted to be at both ends. She wanted to create it and then maybe be the savior. For sure. For sure. There's definitely a, a lot of that going on, like manufacturing drama all the time. And I think it's the term triangulation. Yeah. Triangulating all, all the relationships she, she, she can get into. It's amazing. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show, because I think people don't realize how often this happens. It happens in workplaces. It happens in the schoolyard. It happens in a family system. It can happen anywhere. And so I want to make sure before we finish today to have you kind of point out maybe the things that people can watch out for based on what you've now learned about that kind of personality 
and also how you're raising your children differently than the way you were raised, which I'm sure is very intentional for you. So with the time that we have left, take it anywhere you want to go. It's difficult for me to tell people how to spot it because I kind of grew up in it. So like my perception of what was normal was based on that behavior. So I I think there's a difference if you grew up in that environment. I I think it's in some ways more difficult to spot than if you grew up in a family environment with less personality disorders. Right, because you don't have the distance from it. You're not going to be looking at it from this objective viewpoint. I was intentionally kept from other family environments. Like whenever I developed like a trusting relationship with some of my friend's parents, she would start to talk bad about them uh, with me. And she would kind of like try to keep me socially isolated, basically. I think that's also part of why we moved so much. It was difficult to see in my childhood. In my adult years, I had kind of been programmed to always think that something was wrong with me. So I felt guilty a lot of the time. And it was extremely hard for me to set boundaries because I couldn't feel anger without feeling guilt. So like basically whenever I was a kid, when I got angry about something, often it would be like one of those sudden rules that were made up. Like there wasn't any consistent rules I had to follow, but it was like spur of the moment, there would be like an ironclad rule that I just had to follow. That would make me angry often because it was extremely unfair. And then she would ridicule me for being angry. She would laugh at me. So anger was like a bad feeling. Yeah, that's like a good rule of thumb, I think. If some feelings are taboo, then there's something wrong. Like, I don't think you should have natural feelings that you're not allowed to feel. Like, anger was one of them. I weren't allowed to feel angry. That was a bad thing to ever feel angry. And that effectively meant that I couldn't enforce my boundaries. It was extremely difficult for me also as an adult to enforce normal boundaries for other people's behavior. I think, you know, what you just brought up about not being able to feel anger and she would ridicule you. There are times that when people are manipulators, they take away our safety nets. They take away the boundaries that we could set. They take away our ability to feel the natural reaction, the negative natural reaction to their behavior because they don't want a mirror held up to what they're doing and they don't want to have to take responsibility. They don't want to have to feel bad about what they did. In fact, for some people, they're not capable. Uh, It's just very uncomfortable and they'd rather just get away with it. Most people being raised in environments that are controlling and also people who have come out of cults say exactly what you said. We were not allowed to feel angry. A lot of times people were not allowed to feel sad. You could feel angry and sad about other people and other things, but not about what was happening at home and not about what was happening in the group and not about what was happening at the hands of the person doing it to you. That's a universal reaction. So I think it is a really important sign. If somebody takes away your ability to be upset about what's happening, then they are keeping you from being able to protect yourself from it because your anger or your sadness, whatever you're feeling is often your gauge. It's yourself talking to you saying something is really wrong here or something happened to me that's wrong. And so if that's taken away, then or then the other person or if the other person tries to take it away, the other person is saying, I want to do this to you and get away with it. I don't want to have to deal with the consequences of my actions. So I'm going to make sure there are none. And so I think that's a very important sign, actually. So I'm glad you mentioned it. 
another thing I would tell people is the problem about intentionality, because like going no contact with my mom after I realized uh, all this stuff, I, we haven't gotten into that, but I've cut contact with her. Um, I didn't do that straight away, but her responses to me withdrawing has basically just enforced my sense of reality that I'm right about this stuff, that it actually is what's going on. But it's been extremely difficult to kind of trust my own reality. And I think one of the things that has helped me is to look at the power dynamics in my relationship to my mom, but also in her relationship to other people. So I think trying to isolate that creates a better look at the patterns going on. So like if the person always gives gifts, but never accepts gifts. That's an asymmetrical dynamic there. Why is it like that? It shouldn't be like that between adults. It should be balanced in some way. If they're always helping, but never accepting help. If, it's, if all of their relationships work like that, something is off, I would say. Yeah, that's a really good one. Really good one. And I think what's going to be so important for you now as a parent is to be able to have your children know that all of their feelings matter and that you don't also have to take credit for everything and you're letting them be and not needing to get into their heads. And what can happen too is I think when you become a parent, you can tell me if this is true, you can start to get a sense even on this sort of very primal, visceral level that you could never do those things to these little people who you love. And it starts to have you really see who that person is who raised you and how different they are and how unnatural that would be for you. That's probably the last thing I, I, I would say is trying to imagine the stuff that I've experienced happening to someone else can also feel very different because my reality as a kid was manipulated so much that it's been very, very difficult to go back and feel the actual feelings that were supposed to be there. But I can feel that if I imagine that happening to someone else. So if I've got a situation where I'm doubtful about what's going on or who's right, or if I then imagine that happening to someone who's not me, I think it becomes much clearer to see what's okay and what's not okay. Because that's been really, really difficult for me throughout the years to figure out, like basically cut through the confusion and figure out what's okay and what's not okay. A lot of people, when they go into the world outside of these environments and need to interact or be in relationship with others or parent, they say, I didn't have a model for that. In fact, I had the opposite. Sometimes that becomes kind of a good model because you say, oh, I'm going to look at what my mom did and I'll do the exact opposite. That's actually really handy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy that you were able to be on to talk about your own experiences and to help reinforce this message that it doesn't just exist in kind of strange places or far off places or with an intense amount of physical abuse or sexual trauma. I mean, all of those things do happen, but it's in this sort of insidiousness of the, mm, the invisibility, the subtlety and the confusion that you're left with that a lot of people are walking around with, a lot of people around us. And so I'm happy you were able to illuminate some of that for them today. And I'm happy that you are where you are in your life, also knowing where you've come from. Yeah, um, well, I'm glad I got the chance to talk to you. I think, as you say, it's 
It's extremely common. The last six months, I've spotted it like that kind of behavior in more and more places. Once you understand the patterns, if you could look through the, the manipulations that happen um, rhetorically, then it's much easier to spot. And I think a huge amount of the world's problems basically are caused by that kind of personality disorders. So I love the work that you do educating people on it. I think it's extremely important. Thank you. So thank you again for your time. And I hope you have a good evening and uh, your insights are wonderful. And I'm so glad that your life is, is a good one now. I know that still a child like that leaves scars. It's just bound to, but there are ways to move around them to still have a good enriched life and also provide an emotionally safe environment for yourself and for your family. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Really very much appreciated. Just before the one more thing before you go, I wanna make sure that all of you have a chance to support the show. Please make sure to give us a shout, a message, a um, positive review, if you're so inclined, and also to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a financial supporter of the show to keep it going. Thank you to all of you who have done that. Thank you to all of you who started with $1 a month and decided to raise it to two or five or 10 or more. It is imperative, actually. And it is so lovely. And I and my team and all those who listen, thank you. Now, one more thing before you go. Thank you to Thomas for getting into some very difficult material, basically, some history, some moments that I'm sure are hard to think about and hard to talk about. I really value people like Thomas who want to come forward, who, who are kind of sitting there saying, I am sitting on a lot of information that I haven't had a chance to talk about that I think would be good for me to talk about, but would also be good for people to know about, good for people to learn about. So that if they're in the same kind of situation or similar situation, they'll understand why it's having this impact on them. They'll understand why it's so unhealthy. They'll understand why they're having a hard time making it okay in their minds. And also for people who are moving out into the world and are meeting new people, hoping to date new people, connecting with others that they'll know what to watch out for. One of the things that Thomas did talk about was this quote about his mother having emotional sadism. That's very powerful. I'm sure that's not something anyone wants to be able to say with any clarity about their parent. And you can only imagine the impact that has. You have to actually teach yourself that it is not okay to be treated that way. And you have to teach yourself that you are actually not as horrible as you're being made to feel that you are. And 
that life should not be so uncomfortable and painful. It sounds like his mom had a way of alienating him from the people who could have been in his life, scaring away the neighbors and other friends, making him feel scared all the time before doing anything, really handicapping him until he was able to free himself from that. And as everyone knows, it doesn't happen that once you're free from that, you're fine. You actually have to go through quite a long time of trying things until you're not panicked anymore when you try them just because you've been made to feel scared before, before doing anything. You have to go through the moments of giving it a go and seeing that the things you were told were going to happen, where you're going to fail miserably or something horrible was going to happen, just don't happen. You're going to have to go through also figuring out what it meant that somebody who's supposed to love you and who probably did love you could also treat you this way. And what does love mean to them? And what does a relationship mean to them? When people are emotionally sadistic, they also, unfortunately, don't look back. From my experience, from the work that I do, the counseling that I do, and the unfortunate previous relationship I was in, I sort of see it as people who are at the wheel, they're driving, they're driving the relationship, they're driving how you feel emotionally. They're driving everything, steering things in the direction they wanted to go. But unlike other drivers and other cars, they don't have a rear view mirror. They don't look back. They don't really care. And part of it is they don't care. And part of it is they don't want to have to care because that kind of gets in the way of them being able to just be in the moment enjoying the moment, capitalizing on the moment, and then looking into the future. How do they want their next moment to be? How much control can they take over someone, not only today, but tomorrow? And the trouble is a lot of people that they do this to do have rear view mirrors. <laughs> they do look back. They do actually look back sometimes with some confusion because it was hard for them to actually kind of zero in on what the problem was because there wasn't any attention or focus given to their problems and to their reactions. But still, they know that things happened in the past that really bothered them, even if they don't have the words for it. I may have told this story a long time ago, but I was one time living with someone who had this personality. And we wound up somewhere together. And this person asked me actually to drop someone off from where we were near where my ex lived. And I said, okay, no problem. Cause I didn't live far away. And then my ex who I'd been living with just until about four months before then said, hold on. I need a piece of paper and a pen. So people scrounged around 
and produced a piece of paper and a pen. And then I was handed that piece of paper and on it was scribbled the address, my old address. This person had moved on so emotionally and actually physically because a new relationship had been started with someone else while I was living there, that they actually didn't remember that I had lived there too. So I was handed my old address. That was a moment I will never forget. That's a person who does not have a rearview mirror, a person who does not look back, and then a person who can move on feeling fine, not feeling responsible, not feeling guilt, not feeling remorse. But very often, the others in relationships with these people do have access to those feelings of guilt and remorse. And they can't imagine why the person who's supposed to love them doesn't. I want you to be in relationships where you are never mistreated, of course, where you are never given this sense that it's okay to somehow treat you that way. And if you're upset about it, well, that's on you. And that's just you holding a grudge, or that's just you not being able to get over it. And that's just you hanging on to the past. But no, that's you holding on to reality. And reality informs you. Reality guides you. So be guided well by holding on to what's happened to you in the past and making sure it's not part of your future. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.